Colter Nuanas from ESPN Montana here at the M Store. Proud to present our Nuanas Now podcast each and every day, available on all of your various podcast hosting platforms. One of their awesome partners, a guy that really is uh, helping spread the word about the M Store, is Grizz All American Junior Bergen. What's up, man? Thanks for coming in. Yes, thank you for having me. First of all, you got a cool t shirt. What's it like being on a t shirt? You're a kid from Billings, Montana, so that, yeah. might, that must be kind of surreal knowing there's a t shirt of you at the M Store. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I went to a couple basketball games back home. And uh, I saw some kids running around with I their love shirt it. on. And it was really surreal. It was a cool moment, cool experience for sure. Uh, that's so cool. You guys do such a good job of embracing how much the community loves you. But when people are looking up to you like they do, I mean, they think, I mean, you're the man right now. for <laughs> <laughs> the University of Montana. What's yeah. that like being a Montana kid? Um, it's different for sure. Um, you know, growing up, you kind of look up to guys like who are in the NFL totally. and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it's just great to have a, a positive influence on these kids' lives. Um, you know, I just wanted to make sure... Uh, I set the example and lead by example and give them someone to look up to. Go check out the M Store. They're located there at the corner of Higgins and Broadway here in the city of Missoula. And you can also visit anytime online, MontanaMStore.com. They have all the latest and greatest, a whole bunch of original Grizz gear. And, of course, they have Junior Bergen T-shirts. Junior Bergen, proud partner with the M Store, as well as us here at uh, ESPN Montana. Thanks for swinging by, man. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. The M Store, where they're all Grizz all the time. Hello and welcome in. This is the first ever episode, or at least compilation, of the Sports Medicine Journal. I am Coulter Nuanez. I host a daily radio show each and every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. on 102.9 FM ESPN Missoula, as well as statewide on SWX Montana Television. For about three months now, once a month, we've been joined by Dr. Michael Wright. He is an orthopedic surgeon at Missoula Bone and Joint. We've been talking injuries that affect athletes, prevalent injuries. What does it mean to actually tear your ACL? What's the recovery process like? What does it mean to have a compound fracture like Tiger Woods had recently? And what's the recovery process like? So we've done three episodes so far, and uh, we wanted to archive these in a, a sort of a one-stop shop, a, a easy to decipher and easy to find podcast for all of you and we really appreciate Missoula Bone and Joint for facilitating this and sponsoring this great segment. It's certainly something that is uh, very worthwhile. I think a lot of you out there will find it interesting, informative, and I, I find it absolutely fascinating. So without further ado, please enjoy the first podcasted version of the Sports Medicine Journal. You can find the Sports Medicine Journal presented by Missoula Bone and Joint the first week of each month. Kind of in flux the days we play these. It's usually either Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, but you can find it the first week of each each month on Nuanez Now on 1029 ESPN Missoula, as well as on SWX Montana Television. Thanks so much to Missoula Bone & Joint for sponsoring this great segment. Well, very excited now to go to the Rangish Brothers RV phone line for a new segment. We will be doing this about once a month, sometime in the middle of the week, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, or Thursdays, just depending on what we have for the rest of the week. This will be our Sports Medicine Journal, sponsored by Missoula Bone & Joint. And we welcome into the show, really happy to have the contribution of Dr. Michael Wright, an orthopedic surgeon there at Missoula Bone & Joint. Doc, thanks so much for joining us. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just broadly, the premise we're going to do here, we're going to address some, some specific injuries and what the injury actually means in the sporting world for, for an athlete, and then what the procedure to fix the injury might be and then what the recovery might look like after that. So today we're going to start with what has become one of the most, I wouldn't say commonplace in terms of frequency, but definitely 
uh, an injury that is in the the forefront of the uh, sporting fans' consciousness, and that's torn ACLs. We see torn ACLs not only in the NFL, not only in football, but across the spectrum for a variety of different sports. And particularly, I've talked to a lot of physical therapists around the state, and it seems to be actually even more prevalent in auxiliary sports for female high school athletes than maybe any other sector. Uh, but first, Doc, to start there, years ago, if you tore your ACL or you had any sort of knee tear at all, it seemed as if it was almost a kiss of death. You were going to be very hindered upon your return to uh, the field of athletic competition at the very best, and a lot of times that uh, was it. It was over for you. And now here we are, you know, some 25 years later, a generation later, and it doesn't seem like it's nearly the kiss of death, right? So what has improved overall in, in the diagnosis and treatment of these sorts of injuries? Well, it, that's, you bring up a lot of good points there with regards to ACLs. They, uh, you know, historically, the ACL injury, as you were stating, really was uh, something that could end someone's career. Um, the surgical uh, treatment of an ACL injury has really evolved dramatically, all the way from attempting to repair the ligament, you know, back as early as the 1950s and 1960s, all the way up to a, a novel modern-day reconstruction, which is what we do uh, today. So historically, the ACL, you know, they could try to to sew it back together, which would be repairing the ACL. And initially, that, that surgery was very unsuccessful and resulted in a very high uh, retear rate and failure rate. So we evolved um, to doing a, a surgery called an ACL uh, reconstruction. And what that means is we take out the old ACL and then put in a new ACL uh, using some other graft type. So that's kind of the difference from an ACL repair to an ACL reconstruction. And then within the ACL reconstructive procedure itself, uh, the technology has just uh, expanded dramatically. And uh, I think the biggest advent uh, in terms of improving the surgery itself was the use of arthroscopy. And, and what that means is we can now do this surgery uh, primarily on a TV screen uh, where we don't have to even open people up uh, much at all anymore. And and when you can do surgery in a minimally invasive fashion, uh, we definitely see uh, quicker recovery, quicker return to sport, um, lower risk of complications. And so historically, ACL injuries were treated with a large surgery, multiple hours, uh, oftentimes uh, staying in the hospital for several nights. Uh, to control pain and for other issues. And now we, you know, ACL reconstructive surgery takes, you know, 60 to 90 minutes. It's done uh, kind of on an in and out basis, meaning people can go home the same day. Um, and so we've learned a lot about ACL reconstruction over the years. It's one of the most heavily researched uh, injuries, particularly in the athletic uh, population. There's just been a lot of research that's been done over the years that helped guide us in terms of how do we manage athletes appropriately. Do you feel like a lot of that research has stemmed from the fact that the the injury is a little bit, I, I don't want to say common, but it seems as if uh, it's a regular occurrence, particularly when it comes to contact or auxiliary sports? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, what's unique about an ACL injury is it doesn't heal on its own. You know, a lot of injuries in sports medicine, uh, like strains, sprains, bruises, I mean, they all kind of heal okay, but the ACL, it doesn't have a real robust blood supply. And without that, it, it has the inability to heal on its own. And, and that's why it's so heavily researched is because it doesn't heal on its own. And therefore, you know, modern medicine has tried to seek a solution to, to reconstruct it. And, and the function of the ACL, which I didn't talk about 
um, already, but the, the function of it is to really give someone a stable knee. It's to give them a knee that they can cut on, that they can plan on, that a running back can play on without the knee buckling and giving way. And so that's the goal of the operation is to restore someone's stability so they can continue to play cutting, pivoting type sports. At the highest level of football, we see a lot of ACL injuries come from contact, you know, hitting from the side, the buckling of the mm-hmm. knee, a lot of times the hyperextension. Uh, but in your field, I mean, what are the most common ways that you see athletes at all levels tear their ACLs? You know, the, the sport that comes to mind that's notorious for ACL injuries is, a, is actually a non-contact uh, injury in soccer. Uh, we see that a lot, particularly in, in uh, young female athletes. You know, the studies have supported that they're the highest risk demographic is young female athletes that, that are, would typically be running down the field. They would plant on their leg. And even without another athlete hitting them, they can tear their ACL that way. It's actually pr- pretty, uh, pretty common non-contact injury, but we see it always. I mean, we see it with contact. And particularly as we head into this winter season, too, um, downhill skiing is, is particularly problematic for ACL injuries. It's very common to tear ACL skiing as well. I used to work over in Bozeman, and uh, I worked with APRS Physical Therapy for a while, and, and I used to talk with one of the head PTs over there, and he was talking about um, – uh, research project he had done about auxiliary sports, particularly basketball and volleyball for high school female athletes. And he gave me an astounding statistic. He said in his research, he found about one out of eight and a half, uh, maybe one out of nine uh, females that would play those sports would suffer some sort of ligament damage in their knee, most often an ACL tear. From a physiological standpoint, from just a body structure standpoint, why is that? Why, why is it so common for sports where females are jumping off of the ground that you might have uh, these, these ACL or other knee ligament injuries? Well, really good question. Very difficult to answer. Um, there's been a lot of different anatomical studies trying to address that question um, for example what are answer the question what are the risk factors for ACL injury and there has just been a, a lit more than I can count in terms of studies that have looked at everything from meniscal size to meniscal depth to intercondylar notch width to cartilage thickness the tibial plateau width and depth all these things that I'm bringing up are, are ways we can take measurements in someone's knee to try to say hey who's who's the person who's at risk of tearing your ACL um, so the real answer is we, we still don't truly know. There's The, the studies are, are often kind of equivocal. They'll say suggestions, but nothing is really definitive. You know, one thing that I, I believe is true that I don't know is supported with scientific literature is, is typically young females that are hypermobile, meaning they're very flexible, uh, which is the common problem, seem to have the, the, the hardest problem with ACL. And the thought is if they're really flexible to begin with when they jump or when they plant on their knee, their knee is already a little bit too mobile and the muscles can't they're not strong enough to protect the knee and that may predispose them to to a higher level of injury again that's that's more anecdotal than it is scientific but uh, the the real answer to your question is we still don't know it it's an active uh active uh area of research and expertise every year when we go to the annual meetings and read the journals i mean it's just constantly talked about and the reason is because we still we still truly don't know uh, but we've come a long way. You know, I can tell you we, we know a lot more now than we knew even just 10 years ago in terms of this injury and how to best treat it. Dr. Michael Wright joining us. He's an orthopedic surgeon at Missoula Bone & Joint. This is our Sports Medicine Journal presented by Missoula Bone & Joint. And, Doc, I want to ask you about the difference in the actual surgical procedure. Unfortunately, I have had uh, a couple people really close to me that have had 
Uh, multiple ACL tears, each of them. My best friend, he tore his ACL three times between his junior college basketball and then college football career. And my brother, who had played at the University of Montana, he also tore his ACL. So I've, I've been pretty up close and personal with the surgeries. But one thing my brother always talks about is just the difference between the way that the repair can happen, whether it's grafted from within your own leg muscles or you're grafting the, the ACL repair from a cadaver. So just take us through that element and sort of the differences and maybe the, the pluses and minuses of, of each of those two different types of ACL repair surgery. Yeah, there, you're absolutely right. There's two kind of main ways that we think about for graft choice with ACL. Um, and one option is to take it from a cadaver, from a dead person. Um, and we can take a variety of different tendons and use that to make the new ACL. And then the other option is to use what we call autograft. Auto just means we took it from you. Um, and there's multiple options within the knee that have been tried and that are used. The, the three main ways that an ACL is reconstructed in, you know, in 2021 are the patella tendon, the hamstrings, or the quadriceps tendon. And there's really pros and cons to each, each type of those different autographs. Um, the, the one that's been studied the most and is somewhat deemed the gold standard is the patellar tendon, with the thought being that when you take the, a portion of the patellar tendon, you also take a little bit of bone on both ends of the patellar tendon, and therefore you can achieve bone-to-bone uh, -bone healing once you implant it into the patient. Um, and certainly uh, the patellar tendon is, is durable. It's what most of the NFL guys get you know, when you hear about them having their, their ACL done. But it's also the most painful way to have the ACL done. Um, it's a little bit more morbid in terms of taking the graft. You have to make a, a larger incision than you do with hamstring or, or quadriceps tendon. Um, but, you know, when we look at clinical outcomes, which is really, really important in medicine, it means, you know, how does the patient do afterwards? We do, there's been some large ACL cohort studies that show in young, very active people, so below the age of 25 is what we deem young, um, cadaver has a slightly higher rate of re-rupture, and that's somewhat of a controversial statement because there's studies that both support and refute uh, that claim, but in general, the consensus is that cadaver may not be quite as strong, but it's still very strong. Um, so we often uh, hesitate from using that in really young athletes, college athletes, um, certainly professional athletes. But once someone's in their 30s, 40s, more of a recreational athlete, uh, cadaver's a great way to go because you don't have uh, any morbidity from taking part of your own knee. Uh, you can just take it out of the freezer, and so therefore the recovery's a little bit easier, and uh, it's just kind of a nice way to go uh, if you're a little bit later in life and not asking quite the demands. Uh, on your knee that maybe the running back for the Grizz would, for example. And last question for you then. One of the, probably the most um, quote-unquote prominent ACL tears we've seen over the last uh, six to six months to a year was Joe Burrow, the quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals, former number one overall pick in the NFL draft and uh, former Heisman Trophy winner out of LSU. And I'm not sure, Doc, if you were familiar with that injury or if you saw it happen, uh, but just the general diagnosis was that he completely tore his ACL and they said he also tore almost every other ligament in his knee. I don't know necessarily uh, if it was LCL, MCL, meniscus, whatever, but significant structural damage was how the Cincinnati Bengals doctors um, diagnosed that. So when you hear that, when you hear not just an ACL tear, but a full reconstruction probably needs Needed. What's the recovery process like? Uh, what does a guy like Joe Burrow have in front of him now if he wants to get back to full strength? Well, he's got a he's certainly got an uphill battle. You know, it's it's so easy to look at Adrian Peterson and see what he did after his and and try to think that all ACLs are going to turn out like that. And and just the the reality is they they don't. And 
in general, the more structures that are injured, the harder it's going to be to come back from an ACL injury. And so depending, and I don't know exactly what else he had injured in his knee, but if reconstruction of one of the other, um, there's four major ligaments that stay with the knee. If you had to reconstruct any of those others, it's going to slow it down uh, substantially. Um, so he's got certainly an uphill battle. In terms of recovery, um, you know, as you know, it's often a season-ending injury. Uh, the return to sport is a little bit variable in the literature. When you look at when people are returning to sport, it's usually between six and 12 months. Um, you know, I usually clear my patients at about eight months, depending on how the rehab process has gone. Um, but certainly he's got an uphill battle. And if, certainly if he needed more than one surgery, meaning he needs, for example, an ACL reconstruction plus a posterolateral corner reconstruction, something like that, it just complicates it and it, and it makes it even tougher to come back from. Uh, but it certainly is something you can come back from. And every ACL injury is a little bit different. You know, we see a variety of different meniscal tear patterns that can impact recovery. We see partial ligament tears that can impact recovery. We see, you know, the athlete and how the quality of their rehabilitation and, and certainly their own mental goals and personal goals that all come into play uh, when we're looking at outcomes. But yeah, for Joe Burrow, it's going to be an uphill road, but you, know, you can certainly assume he's going to receive excellent care and his knee the best shot possible as, as coming back to full uh, full participation in the NFL. And real last question for you then, when you're talking about professional athletes, you mentioned Adrian Peterson, and I always reference that when you talk about recovering from an ACL as a maybe just a normal civilian who just skis up at Snowball on the weekends as compared to you know one of the great athletes that's walking around on planet Earth. Uh, so, I mean, do you feel like the fact that some of these guys that are coming back, particularly professional athletes, does, does that give people a skewed perception of what it takes to come back from one of these injuries because these guys are such – you know, maniacal workers and just utterly gifted specimens. Yeah, I think I think it I, I think it does. I agree with that 100. percent I mean, you you know, I had a chance to work with some professional athletes in some of my medical training, and and it's just it is it is just remarkable the type of shape that these are guys these guys are in, uh, particularly mid season. They're asking so much of their body. They're in phenomenal shape, and so if you're in that kind of shape going into it, yeah, the recovery is probably not going to be as bad because you're going to have so much more toned muscle mass. It'll just be a little bit easier for it to come back. And I don't mean to say those guys aren't aren't working hard like Adrian Peterson, but yeah, I I, I think it's probably easier for someone that's so well conditioned to come back from from such a devastating injury. He is Dr. Michael Wright from Missoula Bone and Joint Orthopedic Surgeon here in Missoula. This is the debut of something super exciting. I've been wanting to do this for a really long time, so this is really great. The Sports Medicine Journal presented by Missoula Bone and Joint. We'll be back with you next month. We'll, get a little, we'll give you a little tease when we get a little bit closer to it is about what we'll diagnose next time. But, Doc, thanks so much for being with us. This was a true pleasure. Very interesting. Okay. Thanks for having me, uh, Coulter. We'll talk to you later. The second edition of the Sports Medicine Journal, Dr. Michael Wright and myself, Coulter Nuanez, we talked about high ankle sprains, an injury that is different than a standard ankle sprain. Sometimes it requires surgery for recovery and one that was on full display in the state of Montana at the college football level. During the 2019 season, Montana quarterback Dalton Sneed and Montana State do-everything All-American Troy Anderson both had this same injury. So here's Dr. Michael Wright, our February episode addressing high ankle sprains, the Sports Medicine Journal presented by Missoula Bone & Joint. Well, it's time now for our second edition of what's already one of my favorite segments. It's the Sports Medicine Journal presented by Missoula Bone & Joint. We're going to do this about once a month. Dr. Michael Wright, he's an orthopedic surgeon there at Missoula Bone & Joint. He joins us now. 
And Doc, last time we talked ACLs, it was a lot of fun. It was very informative. We're glad to have you back. How are you? Good. How are you? Very, very good. Today we're going to talk generally about high ankle sprains. I think that that's something that people in the sports lexicon, they hear about quite a bit. But what exactly is a high ankle sprain? I think that's a question a lot of people have. I think a lot of people that have played basketball or other auxiliary sports have probably rolled their ankle and sprained their ankle in the quote-unquote traditional fashion. But let's just start there. I mean, what's the difference when you hear high ankle sprain compared to just a you know quote-unquote normal ankle sprain? Well, the the difference really comes in terms of the severity of the injury. Uh, you know, with a low ankle sprain, you're typically tearing some of the ligaments on the outside of the ankle. But generally, you know, people aren't having so much pain that they can't put weight on it. Um, and generally, they heal up pretty well with conservative treatment. A high ankle sprain is when you injure the stabilizing ligaments of the ankle that are just a little bit higher up. And those ankles or those ankle ligaments are called the syndesmosis, which are very strong ligaments that connect the two bones together. They connect the fibula bone and the tibia bone. And so when you tear those ligaments, it's a more severe uh, injury. It generally takes longer to heal and, and sometimes even requires uh, surgery. What's the most common uh, difference in the way that this happens? I think, you know, people know, yeah, you, you come down wrong on somebody's shoe while you're playing basketball, and that's the way you roll an ankle. You get caught up in a pile playing football, whatever it might be. What's the most common way that a high ankle sprain happens? I mean, what, what is maybe the, the trauma that goes into causing the injury? Yeah, so they, they do tend to happen. Low and high ankle sprains tend to happen by a little bit different mechanism. So uh, you're exactly right. With low ankle sprains, it's typically coming down from a jump landing kind of awkwardly in the ankle generally rolls out to the side in an inversion type mechanism with high ankle sprains you know the typical mechanism would be you know say a wide receiver jumps for a pass and lands on on just their one ankle and they have some sort of twist uh you know typically cleated athletes that are playing on you know turf or even grass surfaces and their 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 cleat gets caught in the the playing surface and it causes the ankle to rotate as the momentum of their body comes down and it's typically that rotational mechanism at the ankle um, that causes the high ankle sprain. And the other thing that happens with that mechanism is the ankle fracture. And we certainly see a lot of that in sports, you know, particularly football, we'll see bad ankle fractures and dislocations. And, and that's really just a, a, another iteration of a high ankle sprain. A really severe high ankle sprain would be when the bones actually break uh, with that rotational mechanism. But one of the reasons these high ankle sprains are so frustrating for, for athletes and, and even for providers is because you're, you're trying to wait on some very strong ligaments to heal. And ligaments in the human body have relatively poor vasculature uh, with respect or compared to like a muscle, which has a lot of good blood supply. You know, when you have like a quad contusion or any sort of muscular injury, it generally heals up very quickly because that structure has robust blood supply. The body's ability to heal and remodel that tissue is very good. And when you're talking ligaments, it's kind of the opposite. They don't have very good blood supply. They take a long time to heal. They're often nagging injuries that people can kind of play through, um, but it really slows them down. It impairs their performance. Um, so this is really, it can be a really plaguing injury. And the reverse can also be true with the high ankle sprain. I mean, sometimes we see people with high ankle sprains and they heal up relatively quickly. So it's it's really a spectrum of an injury, you know, whereas we talked ACL last time, that's kind of a binary injury. It's kind of an all or nothing. You either tore the ACL or you didn't. 
uh, with the high ankle sprain, there's there's a whole spectrum. You can have a very mild one all the way up to a very severe one, you know, that even necessitates uh, surgical intervention. Surgical intervention is an interesting point, too, because this is the Sports Medicine Journal presented by Missoula Bone and Joint. And last year, Doc, around the state of Montana, this was something that was being talked about quite heavily. Uh, no need to diagnose the, speci- the specific athletes that I'll mention, but the starting quarterback for the University of Montana, Dalton Sneed, experienced what was deemed a, a high ankle sprain. And Troy Anderson, who's played some quarterback but also played running back and linebacker at Montana State, but certainly one of Montana State's star players as well, had a similar injury. And Troy Anderson elected to delay his surgery until after the season, whereas Dalton Sneed had a procedure in the season that cost him some games, but then was able to come back. He was never back to full strength. But is severity what leads to the surgery? I mean, is that what is that why surgery occurs, or is it just simply a quicker fix if you do have surgery when you do have a, a high ankle sprain? Well, that's kind of controversial, you know, and that's the whole world of sports medicine is if it's something that can wait till you're out of season, uh, you know, a, a lot of athletes will play through it. And so, yes, the severity plays a, a role. You know, if it's a very, very severe high ankle sprain where the ankle is even partially dislocated because of it, you know, that's something that uh, you really won't be able to play through. And uh, so it is severity that dictates, you know, surgical intervention in the acute setting. Now, once you get out into the chronic setting, uh, it becomes, again, a little more controversial. You can certainly fix a high ankle sprain, you know, many months out after the injury if it scars in in a little bit of the wrong position. Uh, there's kind of a different surgery where you go in and take down those ligaments and kind of reconstruct that area if you have to in the chronic setting. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of the, the severity of the injury, I think, really dictates both the initial management and the long-term uh, management. But I've seen plenty of athletes that are able to put, kind of play through them. You know, they'll usually do kind of rice-type treatment, rest, compression, icing, elevation for the first week or two, and then gradually kind of return to their weight bearing and, and get back to it. But it can be a really long, it can be a really long uh, rehab process, you know, whether you have surgery or not. And again, that leads back to my initial point about the healability of this uh, structure in the body. It's just slow. And uh, so the rehab does tend to be slow as well as you try to retrain all those muscles uh, around the ankle to, to get rehabbed appropriately to, to compete at the high level. If you have a scenario where you do play through it, but then still require surgery, why is that? Is, is, it, is it just because you aren't going to be able to recover naturally on your own? Yeah, I, I think so. And and there's there's a, a body of literature too in the orthopedic world that does suggest you can develop chronic uh, instability of the syndesmosis there, which just means that the the biomechanics of that joint in between the fibula and the tibia, which is right above the ankle, when it scarred in, it didn't heal quite right, or it healed with the ligaments in a little bit of an elongated position, which is not biomechanically optimal. Uh, for the function of the ankle and and really on that same on that same thought that occurs with low ankle sprains as well I'm sure you've heard of athletes um, that have had recurrent low ankle sprains where their ankle just becomes extremely unstable uh, because every time they sprain it they re-tear the ligaments and then they heal but they heal in a little bit of an elongated position and at some point you reach a threshold where those ligaments no longer can do their job and uh, so people that play through it, but then they're still having issues, you know, out of season probably, you know, had ligaments that, that did eventually heal, but they probably healed a little bit uh, too elongated, and therefore they're developing some micro instability at the syndesmosis. And those are really the people that, that may benefit from stabilization of that, of that joint. 
Dr. Michael Wright joining us. It's our monthly sports medicine journal presented by Missoula Bone and Joint. And Doc, when you talk about the recovery elements of it, is that the most challenging part? The, far, the, the reason, I guess, that there's a lack of blood flow to that area, but also it is such a high weight-bearing area? Or what is the biggest challenge to, to rehabilitating when you do have a high ankle sprain? Yeah, it's, it's all of that. You know, it's frustrating for athletes because the progress is so slow, um, you know, really due to that, that, um, the healability of that structure. And, uh, it's, it tends to be one of those injuries that just, just frustrates some athletes to no end because they just continue to kind of have issues with it. Um, uh, as they ask more and more out of their ankle, it's, it's a very kind of complicated joint when you look at the the anatomy of it, and, uh, you know, it can be certainly season-ending and even can be career-ending. We talked last time, too, about the, the surgical procedure of an ACL in terms of where the, the repairing mechanisms come from, whether it's a cadaver or from the own, the, the own subject's body. Is it a similar thing with the, the actual specifics of the surgery uh, here, or, or what's the biggest differences? Well, there, there's quite a few differences. So with the high ankle sprain, you're, you're again, you're trying to restore the patient's normal anatomy by doing a surgery. And, and so with the high ankle sprain, what you, a chronic high ankle sprain that needs to be fixed, you typically don't need to use any sort of cadaver tissue or alternative tissue or even graft from, from the, own, the patient's own body. You typically have to go in and remove the scar tissue that has healed in that elongated position and clean out that joint. And then once you do that, you can get the bones in the right spot and you have to have some way to fix them in the right spot. And once you do that, then the ligaments themselves can actually reheal in the appropriate position. But in to- until you get the actual human skeleton stabilized in the right spot, it's very challenging to get those ligaments to heal in the perfect uh, orientation. And so there's, there's really several different fixation methods that are utilized. Um, you know, you certainly, it's been described multiple different ways with good outcomes with lots of ways. There's a, a device that uses um, suture material as well as, as well as metal buttons and allows you to tension uh, the syndesmosis. It's called a tightrope fixation. You can also fix this with metal screws. Um, sometimes these surgeries, too, if you use metal screws, athletes need a second surgery down the road to take the screws out because uh, the one reason it's a tricky joint is there is some motion that occurs naturally with, with when the ankle bends up and down, there's motion that goes through that syndesmosis. And so when you have screws that cross the syndesmosis, and again, just to back up what the syndesmosis actually is, that's just a fancy medical term for the ligaments that hold the top part of the ankle together, the fibula and the tibia, it connects those two bones together. And so when you put uh, a metal screw, for example, across a moving joint, what happens is eventually over time you can develop some fatigue stress on that material. And it's kind of like if you took a paper clip and you bent it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, eventually the material is going to fail and break. And the same thing happens with syndesmotic screws. And so when syndesmotic screws are placed, their job is to hold that bone perfect only for about three months or maybe four months. And then by that time, the ligaments are healed. And then, you know, you may hear about an athlete going back for a second surgery to take the screw out. That's what they'd be referring to. And the other way to fix this with the suture method, which is the the tightrope type fixation, one benefit of that method is it doesn't require an additional surgery. Uh, The suture material in there, even if it does break, usually doesn't cause any problem. 
uh, to the patient. So it's pretty rare that you ever have to have a second surgery with that uh, method of fixation. But equivalent outcomes really with, with both ways, and, you know, certainly athletes get treated with, with both ways. We're so good to you guys around here, all our loyal listeners. Not only do we entertain you on Nuanez now, but we also educate you as well. Be sure to tune in each month for the Sports Medicine Journal with Dr. Michael Wright from Missoula Bone and Joint as we break down what it actually means to have injuries that are pretty common for the athletes that we cover, talk to, and follow. Doc, we appreciate it. It was very informative, very educational as always. We hope you have a great month, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Colter. Bye. And in our March episode of the Sports Medicine Journal, presented by Missoula Bone and Joint, Dr. Michael Wright and myself, Coulter Nuanas, we talk about compound fractures. This is something that has afflicted a variety of different athletes. Most recently and most newsworthy, Tiger Woods suffered a compound fracture in the car accident he was in earlier this month. But also Alex Smith from the Washington Redskins. Former Grizz wide receiver Mark Mariani, when he was playing for the Chicago Bears, compound fractures, I wouldn't say common, but have happened certainly uh, frequently over the years uh, in football as well. So here's what it takes to recover from a compound fracture with Dr. Michael Wright, the Sports Medicine Journal presented by Missoula Bone & Joint. It's time now for what is becoming one of my favorite segments. It is the Sports Medicine Journal presented by Missoula Bone & Joint. We do this once a month, usually the first week of each month, and air it on either Wednesday or Thursday on Nuanez Now. And uh, Dr. Michael Wright from Azula Bone & Joy, he's an orthopedic surgeon. He joins us once a month. We talk a lot about just the w- injuries, the way they impact athletes, the recovery process, and everything in between. And so this week... I wanted to talk about compound fractures. I think it's in the news at a high level because of Tiger Woods and his car accident. He suffered uh, multiple fractures to his legs, including a compound fracture. And so, Doc, let's just start there. Just define for us, what is a compound fracture? Well, compound fractures are are some of the most serious types of uh, fractures that we see in bones. It typically means that when the bone breaks at the time of injury, it's so sharp that it can cut through the skin uh, and it actually exposes the bone to the opened air. So the other name for this would be an open fracture. Um, and this is one of the things within the field of orthopedic surgery that is, is really treated as, as somewhat of an emergency. Um, you know, this is something when the ER calls you about, it's it's something you kind of drop what you're doing and, and go to treat. And the reason we're so aggressive in treating these urgently is anytime there's a disruption to the skin, it opens up the bone uh, to bacteria that uh, are all over the skin. And if an infection sets into a, a bone, it can really be disastrous uh, for a patient and very difficult to effectively treat. And that's the situation that happened with Alex Smith, the quarterback for the Washington Redskins. He suffered a compound fracture. Bacteria did infiltrate his leg. He had compounded compartment syndrome as well as a massive infection. He almost lost his leg. He almost died. And so then he came all the way back from that. Obviously, the NFL Comeback Player of the Year. What a story. But just elaborate on that part, uh, Doc. I mean, how, how, I mean these, these infections are very serious. They can honestly cost you your leg or even your life. Oh, they absolutely can. And uh, Alex Smith, I mean, the story, I mean, just uh, just remarkable. You know, I think if you'd asked orthopedic surgeons if they thought a comeback was possible with what he went through, you know, 17 or so surgeries, I, I think almost, you know, almost unanimously people would say probably not possible. So certainly we tip our hat to him for what he's been able to do. Um, but his case was really, from what I know about it in the lay media, one of the most 
severe types of open fractures in that he developed a specific type of infection. He developed necrotizing fasciitis, which is a very, very aggressive uh, infection that requires aggressive surgical treatment to remove uh, the infection. You know, a lot of types of infections, including many of the staph and strep infections uh, that happen from skin, you can effectively treat sometimes with oral antibiotics or even IV antibiotics, and they don't often require urgent surgery, but necrotizing fasciitis is, is really a condition where the bacteria spread very, very rapidly. They track up through the different skin planes and the fascial planes, and, uh, you know, the, the, the chance of amputation becomes a very real, uh, a very real situation for, for the patient. So, uh, you know, when this sort of thing happens in, you know, say Missoula, Montana, or smallerish uh, towns, they often get shipped out to big medical centers such as Seattle or Salt Lake because it's uh, it truly is life threatening. So the fact that Alex Smith was able to to save his leg through all that is is really quite remarkable. Um, but the the types of infections we typically see from open or compound fractures are not usually the necrotizing fasciitis. That's really the worst uh, possible scenario you can get. It's it's uh, more common that you get an infection that may require additional surgeries, but is not necessarily life-threatening. Um, but certainly, each each infection is just a, a really a disastrous setback, and uh, the skin provides the human body so much protection. It, any small disruption in that skin just can open the door uh, for those bacteria to just set up set up shop. And one specific element that we see a lot in orthopedic surgery is when the bone itself actually gets infected. That's called osteomyelitis. And that's a specific type of bone infection that is generally not treated well with antibiotics. It usually requires surgical debridement. So that's why when you look at this thing with Tiger Woods, you know, best case scenario is the wound gets closed up, the bone goes on to heal without any evidence of infection. Still a horrific fracture. But, you know, right now the thing that it should be on every doctor's mind treating him is, is there any evidence of that infection setting in? Because the earlier you can catch it, you know, the better that the outcome will ultimately be. Dr. Michael Wright joining us. He is an orthopedic surgeon at Missoula Bone and Joint. We do this once a month. It's our sports medicine journal presented by Missoula Bone and Joint. And I hearken back, Doc, to a story from the early 2010s, uh, a kid named Coney Dole, who was a football player at Huntley Project. He had a compound fracture in his leg, it ended up uh, accelerating, and he got compartment syndrome. He ended up losing his leg. He then valiantly returned and became the first Division One football player. Uh, he got a scholar. He, he ended up getting an opportunity to play at Montana State and became the first Division One football player to play on a cheetah blade, uh, which was an inspiring story within itself. But tell us uh, just about compartment syndrome. What does that mean, and how is that tied in with compound fractures? Well, compartment syndrome is another diagnosis that really, when the ER calls you about, you drop what you're doing. Uh, because with compartment syndrome, time is of the essence. And, and what I mean by that is, is I should back up by just defining compartment syndrome. So compartment syndrome occurs when there's an injury to the leg that results in swelling. And at some point, the swelling just gets bigger and bigger and more severe that the pressure inside the compartments in the leg gets so high that it eventually starts to disrupt the blood supply to the leg. It can disrupt the blood supply to the nerves within the leg. And eventually, the leg will truly die from ischemia because the pressures have become so great. Uh, and that disrupts the blood supply. And so the surgical treatment for compartment syndrome is 
an immediate release of the fascia. And the fascia is the outer shell uh, that that holds the muscle up against the bone. It, every muscle in the human body has a lining that goes around it and it, it functions to keep the muscle in place and keep it protected and nourished. And so when compartment syndrome sets in, the surgical treatment is you just cut that fascia. And oftentimes, you know, I've had to do this several times in my career for, for patients, the muscle, once you release it, just herniates out of that fascia almost immediately and you can just see the intense pressure that it's under. And so time is of the essence. If it, the delayed diagnosis of compartment syndrome truly can be disastrous and ultimately can, can lead to, to amputation if, if the leg starts to die and the ischemia becomes irreversible. If you, are, if you have a compound fracture and you are fortunate enough to avoid compartment syndrome, you're fortunate enough to avoid infection, What's the process like then to come back from that? I mean, for an athlete like Tiger Woods, what is he facing in terms of getting back to full strength? Maybe not even in terms of playing, but just back to living a normal life. Well, he's certainly got an uphill battle. Um, you know, the things that I, I consider with Tiger Woods' case is, so if, if his treatment course goes, as you've just outlined, he avoids major complication within the first few weeks after the injury, and his fracture goes on to heal, Generally, people with an isolated tibial shaft fracture, uh, which is the long bone fracture in the lower leg, generally they can learn to function quite well. People can certainly learn to run again. They can certainly learn to be active again. That's if the bone goes on to heal in the normal time course. You know, certainly there's rehabilitation involved, and it's a long road, but it's possible. The, the thing that worries me a little bit about Tiger Woods' case, and I certainly don't know the, the intricacies of his case, but... There's some mention of some foot and ankle injuries as well that also required plate fixation and additional fixation. And the implications of that could be uh, even worse than the compound fracture because within the foot and ankle, uh, there's many, many little small joints that, that all those bones articulate with. And if there's a disruption of one of those joints or if the bone breaks inside one of those joints, it really can be disastrous. It can, it can result in kind of a, an injury that just plagues an athlete. It, it results in early arthritis. It, it results in, you know, somewhat constant pain and really can impair performance uh, more so than an isolated tibia fracture. So that's what's worrisome to me about Tigers. He's got, you know, really at least two kind of major things going on. And depending on the severity of the foot and ankle issues, those could be even more uh, you know, detrimental to his career than the, the open tibial shaft fracture. Is there varying levels of compound fractures or, or is all of, are they all uh, created equal, so to speak? No, there's, there's certainly varying levels. We, we grade them on a scale of one, two, and three based on a classification that describes how much soft tissue loss or disruption there has been. And, and so, for example, there's a big difference between, you know, a 10-year-old kid falls off a swing and has a little tiny poke hole, you know, the size of the tip of a pencil where the bone just poked through the skin and, and then went back in, as compared to someone, you know, in a motorcycle accident who, you know, has 50% of their muscle loss around their bone. So there's a huge, huge spectrum, as there is with nearly every injury uh, that we treat. Um, and what we found is the more soft tissue stripping, the more soft tissue disruption, obviously the higher likelihood of infection and certainly the worst outcome. Um, so it's, it's really hard to know what Tiger's facing because we don't really know how severe the, the skin opening was. You know, sometimes in car accidents, one thing I've encountered in my career occasionally is 
the bone has so much soft tissue loss on it, it'll later require a skin graft, or it'll even require a rotational muscle flap, something that's done by a plastic surgeon to try to get the bone covered again. And that's really in the worst case scenario. But if you do have to undergo one of those procedures, you can imagine, you know, if you have to do a, a gastroc or a calf muscle rotational flap, that's going to have some major functional impairments in, in, in a high-level, high-performance athlete like someone like Tiger Woods. So, again, that's kind of going down the rabbit hole of, of worst-case scenario for him. But, uh, you know, it's just hard to know what he's, what he's going through and, and how severe his injury is. He's Dr. Michael Wright, Missoula Bone & Joint. It is our Sports Medicine Journal. We do this once a month. Uh, diagnosing and elaborating on some of the things that athletes go through with the injuries that they suffer in sports. Informative as always, Dak. We really appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you here in a few weeks. Okay, thanks for having me, Coulter. Get commencement ready at the Montana State Bookstore, your best place for blue and gold on game day or any other day. Their grad fair sale is going on right now if you visit msubookstore.org. Free regalia. When you purchase a diploma frame at the MSU Bookstore, you can obviously visit the MSU Bookstore on the Montana State campus. The Montana State Bookstore, your best place for blue and gold on game day or any other day. Visit on campus or at msubookstore.org.